Just as a quick warning, this episode is going to contain descriptions of some things that may be a little gross medically and definitely some talk about sex and sexual contact and sexually transmitted diseases and that sort of thing. So if that's something you are sensitive to, you might want to skip those parts or skip this episode entirely. But there's a lot of useful and interesting science to unpack here. So if you can make it through, then I think that you will find something in this episode. And if not, then we will see you next time. You're listening to Why We Do What We Do. All right, welcome to Why We Do What We Do. I will be your host, Abraham. And I am your co-host, Shane. Today we are talking about a disease Ah, for all the fun things. Yeah, that's what we need right now. It's like, you know, the world is on fire. There is a disease going on that people are really having a hard time with. And this one is one that maybe I feel like people don't know a lot about, but are terribly afraid of. Yeah, this is not the disease, not the COVID disease that everybody knows about. Different disease. I definitely thought for a moment when you launched into the world's on fire, you're going to keep going with the Smash Mouth lyrics. <laughs> I was prepared to be in support of that. I'm sorry. I'm, I missed opportunities. That's just where I'm at. It's like I missed those. Like that's sh- something I should have been. I'll, I'll do better. That's what I'll do. <laughs> That's all right. <laughs> so the disease that we are talking about, if we haven't mentioned it yet, is syphilis. Ah, yes. The thing that Tom Hanks says when he's the roadie for Wayne's World. Also, one of the key words in the, the parcel tongue or parcel mouth vocabulary from the Harry Potter series. Is it really? No. <laughs> okay. It sounds like it, though. Yeah, exactly. It's just got the right sounds. The f and us sounds together <laughs> make it sound very uh, like a snake language type of thing. Yeah. As I say, Syphilis Snape is probably my least favorite character in the entire series. Yeah. Or belonging in House Syphilis. <laughs> it's not, not one you want to be in. Awesome. <laughs> Some silver lining of this disease. At least it's not itchy. Yeah. That's a cool thing. I mean, some of the other ones are itchy and that's not fun. So... From what I hear, right? To clarify, you know, I think one of the things we have to ask around this, and kind of the one things, one of the things that we want to understand about this is like, can it kill you, and what causes it? Those are two things that we maybe because I don't know if you're from the United States, you probably didn't get a great education on sex health or sex education or any of these things. You were probably told not to have sex. Basically, you were told don't have sex. If you have sex, you'll die. But if you do have sex, cover yourself up, and that's about all you get. Right. It's just a blanket with a hole punched out of it. And that's how you have sex. Pretty much. (laughs) Which will not prevent syphilis, by the way. But so sure. Yeah. Syphilis is treatable. So should you still care? You're just like, yeah, whatever. Get syphilis. The world goes on sort of thing. No, I'd rather not anyway. Right. And then, of course, what can we do to increase awareness for testing and prevention of this disease? Then that kind of gets down to the idea of like why we're even talking about this. Like, what's the point? And we're going to kind of really break this down and talk about why it's important to talk about this thing, because humans in general are gross, but human diseases are pretty awful. Particularly because we are a psychology podcast. Why would we be talking about disease? Wouldn't that fit better on something like a medical podcast or maybe a science podcast? And although I, I would argue that we are a science podcast... It is because of its effect on the brain. Of course. That we felt it would be useful to talk about this particular disease. Yes, this one does a lot of damage. So let's go ahead and give a brief overview. Make sure you have the necessary background information on this. 
So, Shane. Yes. Did you know that syphilis is a disease that is caused by the bacterium Treponema pallidum subspecies? Who doesn't? <laughs> Fair. Treponema is in my regular everyday lexicon. So, you know, so glad that we're talking about it today so that other people can include that in their language. That's right. You'll probably want to now try and use this in regular conversation. <laughs> so something that I, I wasn't super clear on, though, is how this is spread. And although it can be spread as a sexual disease, so like a, a sexually transmitted infection or a sexually transmitted disease or saves the day. <laughs> Through being cool is such a great record. <laughs> Just the whole STD thing. Anyway, <laughs> I thought that was funny when they had like shirts that said that. Right. And you're like, why would you wear that? Folks, did you not know what you were doing? For those of you, our listeners who don't know, saves the day was the bands, then their initial spell STD. So Anyway, this spreads through really through any kind of contact with the infected areas on the body of another person, and these infected areas are usually in the form of sores. There are several forms of it, too. So when we start talking about this, it's important to know that we're kind of providing a general overview, but the forms of the disease take on different characteristics depending on how severe it is, how long after the exposure one has had it, how long it's gone untreated, and that's a lot of what we're going to talk about today, too, is like the, the treatment and non-treatment of this disease. Right. And so untreated, it can lead to visual impairments, hearing loss, stroke, and then other neurological problems. And again, that was sort of the inspiration for why to talk about this at all is its relation to what or the effect that it can have on the brain. Yeah. So historically, this was a significant health concern for many parts of the world, given that there wasn't like a really great treatment for it. And it did have these really drastic effects. For almost 500 years, up until about the 1900s, when penicillin came around, it was even more of a concern because you were seeing these drastic effects on people that were contracting it. And so once we had penicillin, and that was great, we were like, cool, this is not going to destroy lives anymore. The rates had started to go down through periods of the late 1900s. But unfortunately, during the 2000s have made a bit of a resurgence, not super massive, obviously, but have started to come back. And this is potentially due to rates of promiscuity in certain parts of the world, along with an increased rate of unprotected sexual interaction between certain people. It's kind of interesting when we start looking at this idea of how people get this, because most commonly it's referred to as a sexually transmitted disease or a sexually transmitted infection. But again, it can be contracted in multiple ways, which we'll talk about. Now, the thing that we want to kind of emphasize here, we're going to talk about what it does and, and what it really is. But one of the most important things is it doesn't simply just go away without treatment. It's not one of those things that your body can just fight off and it moves on. Like, you know, it's not like a common cold or anything like that. So there are different stages that you might experience if you contract syphilis. Yeah, this isn't one of those take two of these and call me in the morning type diseases. It's fairly aggressive and progressive. And so going through these stages, ready to talk about the stages? Let's do it. Okay, great. This is another one. We'll talk about how this can be obtained because there's the through the sores and sexual contact, it can also be transmitted congenitally, so at birth. But the first stage is you have this primary, which is two to six weeks after contact, and there is some kind of contact with infectious lesions of another person or sexually with that person, and the lesions appear at the site and contain the infectious bacteria. So again, this, this is where the sores are, and they often form this ulcer, again, silver lining, not itchy. It can be just a single ulcer or multiple, and it's approximately 0.3 to 3 centimeters in size. So you got something that's fairly small to like almost, I mean, like a coin, not quite the size of a coin. They're, they're fairly small. 
maybe a very large pimple is a way to think about it. Yeah, or like a spider bite, maybe. Right, yeah, there you go. I like that we keep reiterating that it's not itchy. Yeah, I mean, that's <laughs> if you if you leave with nothing else from the episode, that's the thing to know is like you won't have to put a bunch of like, what is it, Bactine or something that's supposed to reduce itching? I don't remember now. Can't remember what it is. I had to use it when I had chicken pox and it was really great for that. Oh, is it the, it's like a calamine lotion maybe? Yeah, calamine lotion. Okay, that's what it is. So you don't have to use calamine lotion. But one thing to note too, you might see multiple lesions and they are more common if it's co-occurring with HIV. So, and that would be just, the worst if you had hiv and you had syphilis like that's not really a great situation to be in but if you have both you might see more lesions as a result of that now for women the lesions occur more often on the cervix or around the cervix where men it occurs around the penis and then for men who are engaging in sort of anal sex or anything like that you might see rectal or anal lesions as well very unpleasant We will continue to talk about some things that might be a little hard to hear in terms of the sores and the disease and the places where those sores and the disease can happen. So I'm going to record a little warning that we'll put at the beginning of this episode. And I'm also going to warn you now that that's going to continue to happen. So sorry, this is your second time hearing this warning. Also, another thing here during this primary stage. So again, just to remind you, this is two to six weeks after contact. Lymph nodes will enlarge after about 10 days, and then the lesion can persist for three to six weeks if it is left untreated. Right. So at this primary stage, like it's pretty clear that you have it. It's not comfortable. It's not fun. It's not itchy, but it shows its face pretty early on in the in the stages of this disease. It does show its face like it is present, but it's not clear how obvious it is that that's what's causing it yet. And so that's actually, I think, one of the things that can be kind of sneaky is that it can kind of look like anything. And so it might not be particularly obvious that that's what is causing the lesion. Okay, that's fair. All right. So then that brings us to the secondary stage, right? So, I mean, this occurs four to 10 weeks after the primary infection occurs. And so what you start seeing here is that there's infection in the skin, mucous membranes, there's lymph nodes, there's all this stuff that's going on. It starts getting kind of like, I think the technical term is Gookie? Gookie. Yeah, that is the technical term. That's right. <laughs> Very specific diagnostic criteria to call something gookie. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Now, this starts to look like sort of a Rorschach ink blot test because it's symmetrical, red, pink, sort of so pinkish, reddish, whatever. Non-itchy. Make sure we state that because that's going to be our, that's our word <laughs> of the episode. A non-itchy rash. And so this may develop into warts on mucous membranes and harbor bacteria that are also infectious. Right. So that makes it that much easier to transmit. Right. Now, some other symptoms that you might see after in this secondary stage might be fever, sore throat, general malaise, weight loss, hair loss, headaches, and some rarer stuff like joint inflammation, kidney disease, specifically inflammation on the optic nerve. Because remember before we mentioned that it can result in blindness. Right. So you might see these other rare symptoms at this secondary stage. And so this is, I think, where it's becoming more obvious that this is not just a basic sore that you have. This is not just any old disease. You're looking at something a bit more serious. And that leads us to the latent stage. And this is where it becomes particularly insidious, I think, because in the latent stage, as the name would imply, you can become asymptomatic. So it looks like it clears up and goes away on its own. And if you were to take a test... Like some, if you were to do a serum test or something, it would test positive, but you might have no observable symptoms otherwise and think, oh, cool, it cleared up on its own. Great. And then the early latent phase, this is 
less than two years after the original infection. And then there's the late latent phase, which is more than two years after the original infection. And so you're not as infectious in that early stage. But if untreated, 15 to 40% of people can develop what we'll move into next, which is the tertiary stage of syphilis. I think this is important to note, too, is when we start talking about this, this initial infection where it talks about like general discomfort and some general problems and maybe some symptoms that might be similar to some other diseases or, or uh, infections that you might have. Now we're talking about this being a long-term disease, long-term exposure. This tertiary stage can be anywhere between three and 15 years after an initial infection. So that's a, an important note here. And that actually will lead into some of the challenges that we discuss later in these long-term damages that we discuss as a result of this disease. And this is why it is really important to get tested, because if you have this late latent phase where you don't have any symptoms, but you nevertheless are infectious, then you could be spreading this around quite a bit, not knowing that you're spreading it around. Because if you never got tested, then you would just be infectious without really knowing. And that could go on for quite some time where you are likely in a position to be able to spread it. So if you have any of those secondary symptoms or even primary symptoms that we mentioned, definitely get tested because this, this can be, this is a pretty rough one. Right. So at this stage, you're not contagious, but you might start experiencing the most severe symptoms. Now, what ends up happening here is without this level of treatment, like if you're in this stage and you don't have treatment, a third of infected people develop this tertiary disease, which typically affects the skin, bone and liver and can occur anywhere. So it actually has some different ways that this manifests in the human body and causes these additional problems. Right. So one of them is late neurosyphilis, and this is about 6.5% of people. And this is an infection of the central nervous system. So this affects basically your entire body. Right. Which is awful to think about an infection in your central nervous system. Like that sounds yeah, awful. That's the worst. Like you can think of the central nervous system as like the infrastructure of your entire body. Like if that's infected or stops working, then your entire body is compromised. Yeah. No, thanks. So then you've also got the cardiovascular syphilis, which happens to about 10% of folks that have it at this stage. And this might start manifesting itself 10 to 30 years after the initial infection. So you might see what's called or hear what's called syphilitic aortitis. I think you got it. I think that's it. <laughs> okay. Syphilitic aortitis, which may cause aortic aneurysms. So again, like that's an infection in your heart. That's some bad stuff going on. And then there's the meningovascular syphilis, which can be one to 10 years after initial infection. So for this meningosyphilis or meningosyphilis, also called meningeal syphilis, which is a little bit easier to say, is essentially characterized by, you might see ataxia, stroke, visual impairment, incontinence, hearing loss, seizures, headache. You can even be accompanied by personality change. So this, this is sort of like a, a neurosyphilis, and this, this can include also meningitis and optic atrophy. A lot of technical terms. That sounds bad. Yeah. All of that sounds bad. Yeah, essentially it's bad. Yeah. <laughs> that's the summary of it. And again, that's to reiterate the point that like if you are concerned, you should get tested often and just make sure that you're okay because this tertiary level of infection is just bad news all around. Like there's nothing, I mean, it's not itchy. But it's still a problem all around and can cause a lot of permanent damage. Whew, not itchy. Oh, thanks. I live in Florida and there's just mosquitoes everywhere and that makes everything itchy in general. So for one thing not to be itchy, that's nice. <laughs> now, we mentioned the congenital way of contracting syphilis. This is when it is transmitted during pregnancy or during birth. 
and about two-thirds of infected infants are born asymptomatic, so they don't show any of the symptoms of having syphilis. So if newborns do start demonstrating symptoms, though, you might see stuff like uh, an enlarged liver or enlarged spleen. You might see rashes, fevers, neurosyphilis, lung inflammation, which for babies, not really great. I mean, this stuff is not great for full grown humans as well, but it's also really bad for newborn babies because they are just not as equipped to fight this stuff or deal with it. Yeah, they're punished earlier for promiscuity. I guess the babies weren't being promiscuous, but the (laughs) (laughs) just kidding. And also, I feel like I always want to be careful not to demonize promiscuity as something that is definitely going to result in disease. It's certainly when it's unprotected is when it's most likely to spread. So and then for these infants, symptoms can worsen if they are untreated and can result in things like miscarriage and dental defects. Also, sometimes called British disease. Yeah, so... (laughs) Just kidding. (laughs) For our folks across the pond, we just celebrated the 4th of July, so we're very proud at the moment. That's right. (laughs) Exactly. It's our independence, so we we gotta (laughs) shake our fists. Take that, Britain! And take that, Boris Johnson. (laughs) Yeah, so, I mean, obviously, like, we've talked about all this stuff, right? And it sounds really bad on every level, like... Uh, aside from the itchiness, it's neurologically damaging. It's damaging to your eyes, your heart, your central nervous system. Like all this stuff is a problem, right? And so it still goes back to this singular cause, which is this bacteria, which is the treponema pallidum, right? Which is again, in my daily lexicon, when I go to Starbucks, I talk about the treponema pallidum. I mean, who wouldn't? We want to hear that coming out of your mouth. (laughs) Yeah, everybody loves a little bit of like Latin when it comes to species of origin. Wait a minute, are you ordering the treponema pallidum for like coffee? Well, I think that's a fall special, so I don't think it's out right now. Oh dear, I'm going to go ahead and as part of my recommendation for this episode, it is do not order or drink the treponema pallidum <laughs> <laughs> coffee. Yeah, Starbucks is under a lot of fire right now. They, they always kind of find themselves in that space. So maybe don't, when that comes out, don't get it. God, can you imagine a hot cup of sexually transmitted disease <laughs> like what a terrible idea oh god any sort of hot cup of human fluid sounds awful <laughs> word okay <laughs> so anyway so humans are the only natural reservoir for this disease this is not one of those cross-species zoonotic things this is something of our own doing and making and this disease cannot survive without a host for more than a few days which is important because some of the myths that we'll get to around how this could be transmitted usually rely or many of them at least depend on this being able to linger for a long period of time outside the human body and then you just sort of picking it up like gum on your shoe but it can't survive it really needs a human host and so we carry it with us and then spread it around right and it has a uh what's described as a slow doubling time in which it exponentially grows it takes about 30 hours for it to double and double and double kind of like when we talk about how cells split and and bacterium split so what's really problematic about this though is because it's so slow to do that it actually does a really good job of evading the human immune system so it's kind of like the tom cruise and mission impossible of stds like it really kind of dips and dodges away from those white blood cells and is super invasive right and so we talked about the transmission a bit already. Of course, this can be contracted via sexual contact. And then something called vertical transmission, which is just that congenital transmission that we talked about where it can go from an infected mother to the child. And then there is any amount of getting near these lesions. So kissing near a lesion, if you have oral, vaginal, or anal sex, and there's a lesion there. 
I mean, just don't go poking around in people's lesions. <laughs> just avoid lesions altogether. And every time I hear the word lesion, I think of that group of villains from DC Comics, the Legion of Doom. And so I just keep thinking of this is like the Legion of Doom. The Legion of Doom, yeah. Speaking of Legions of Doom, we got to talk about the infectivity, right? So like 30 to 60% of exposures to primary and secondary stages will get the disease. So it's a little bit more than a coin flip, which is something you probably don't want to mess around with. Now, currently, most new cases, about 60% occur in male-to-male contact or male-to-male interactions when it has to do with anal sex in that regard. So, But 20% of those cases actually come from oral sex alone. So again, it comes back to that idea of kissing or oral sex or or anal sex where lesions are present. Of course, this is possible by coming into contact with other people's blood. This can occur through things like donations, but it's pretty unlikely, especially because in a lot, hopefully most, I don't actually know the the prevalence of this, but in, in a lot of places, they screen donations and test for things like syphilis and other diseases. I've donated blood on many occasions and they always start by taking a few vials that they're going to test for things like HIV, for syphilis, for prion diseases. They're going to make sure that there's none of that in the blood before they give it to somebody else. So if you're in a country where they don't do those tests, then it's more likely that a blood donation could potentially have syphilis. I don't know how often people with syphilis are compelled to go donate blood, like if they're already experiencing some of those symptoms and have nausea, but Possibly during the late latent stage, they might. Right. And so that's just something to keep in mind. Oh, also, there is a small risk of contracting it from sharing needles, which you should not ever do for any reason. So get clean needles. Right. That's an immediate risk for a whole lot of things. So just don't do that. Yes, exactly. It's not just syphilis. Like, very honestly, syphilis is probably the least of your worries if you're sharing needles. So, (laughs) But still a worry. A small, but one. still a worry. Still a worry, but just again, that's our second public service announcement. Don't share needles. I'm full of them this episode. Let's listen. We've, we're public health servants. What can we say? So, one thing that I think, and, and this is a myth that we like to debunk because we we are big on myth debunking. We are. I think the other term that we would normally use is copyrighted. So it's not generally possible to contract syphilis through toilet seats, daily activities, hot tubs, sharing utensils or straws, or clothing. So it's not one of those things where you're going to see people get syphilis from trying on a shirt at Target or using a public restroom because these bacteria, they actually die quickly outside of the body. So transmission via objects or surfaces is incredibly difficult for this particular bacteria. Yeah, maybe if you like rubbed a utensil on an open lesion when it was particularly infectious and then put it right into someone else's mouth, that might do it. So avoid that for all the reasons. But for the most part, it's unlikely to be. Uh, yeah, also that don't way. be yeah, don't be that person. That's gross. <laughs> don't be that what kind of person are you that you're gonna do that? Yeah, that the kind of person who rubs utensils on their sores and then puts them in other people's mouths. Oh <laughs> <laughs> uh, 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 God. <laughs> so you know, I when I was younger, my friends used to say I had an iron stomach because I could eat anything from anywhere without ever getting sick. But that made me a little bit queasy <laughs> to think about. Well, there's a difference between like food in your iron stomach and then being nauseated by something particularly gross, which I because I'm actually very similar. And and so I, I think of I, I'm like, I am Iron Man only in that way that I have an iron stomach. And in no other way. (laughs) Yeah, that's it. I don't have that suit. Okay, let's talk about diagnosis really quick. So, yes, it is difficult to diagnose during the early infection um, and to do so accurately. And primarily because, as we mentioned, it it looks kind of like it could be anything and it's not necessarily clear. 
that you have syphilis, but doctors are able to confirm a diagnosis with blood tests or using something called dark field microscopy. The blood test is the most common, and this is it's unable to identify which stage it is currently in, but the, the stages are largely just based on how symptoms are currently arranged anyway, so it's not like there's a clear, hard boundary between one stage and the next. And then, of course, there is direct testing, which does yield an immediate diagnosis, but it, it must be done within 10 minutes of collecting the sample because, again, these bacteria just don't live very long outside the body. So you've got to basically take it straight from the body to testing, and then that can yield immediate results. Also, the term dark field microscopy is awesome. That is. That should definitely be an album name. I was going to say, it sounds like a Between the Barrier to Me song. <laughs> when we start talking about this, and now that we've scared the bejesus out of you about this disease, we should talk about prevention. And right now, one of the things that you need to know is that there's not currently an effective vaccine to prevent or to disrupt this disease. So you're not going to be able to go out and get a shot and guard yourself from this disease. Which does kind of make sense thinking about how vaccines work if you're going to use a dead or partially disabled virus or disease and then have your body build an immune response. Like Based on the, how these infections tend to occur, it seems like our bodies aren't super good at mounting a very strong immune offense against these. This makes logical sense that there wouldn't be an effective vaccine yet. That doesn't mean that we couldn't have one. That certainly is, is potentially down the road. But right. another prevention or another way of engaging in prevention from obtaining this, of course, is through safe sex practices. So using contraception like condoms can reduce the likelihood. Not perfect, but it is going to make it less likely that you'll contract it. But again, this really has only to do with if the infected area is protected. So it's like if the lesion is being blocked from direct contact. That's how that's going to work. So if the source is beyond the latex, then of course it's not going to be as effective because there's not a barrier between that lesion and the person touching the lesion. Right. And so another one that, you know, I feel like Americans are very fond of is abstinence or any sort of avoidance of intimate physical contact. Apparently uh, that's big in the Bible belt down here for all my Southern listeners. The idea of abstinence, like avoiding some kind of intimate physical contact or monogamy with a partner confirmed to be negative, that will usually result in some kind of prevention, some kind of avoidance of contacting that disease. <laughs> that Southern accent was so good. Oh, you've never heard my southern accent where I talk about I talk about drinking a mint julep on a hot summer day. <laughs> I don't think it's that like I sweet, have. sweet molasses. Oh man, you nailed that. That's so good. <laughs> I mean, I guess to, to my western U.S. ears, you nailed it. But <laughs> I, thought that's I feel good. like that's a, like a Louisiana or a Mississippi type of accent where it's like a like it's a slow drawl. Right. Yeah, that's fair. <laughs> Okay, so going to, again, prevention, when we talk about, as we mentioned, one of the highest demographics in which there is spread is in same-sex contact between men. And so for prevention, it's suggested, to, this isn't really prevention, but for screening and catching it early, it is suggested to get regular testing at least annually. This is a CDC recommendation. Or if you can go even more frequently, every three or six months. And especially get tested more frequently if there, if you have multiple partners or if there is a lot of substance use and being around people for which you might have the opportunity to contact those infections and whatnot. Yeah. And I think one thing to note here, it's really important to note kind of maybe the reason why you're seeing a higher prevalence in men to men contact. It's not because it's a gay disease. Like, I think that's really I want to make sure that's really clear. Like simply by the nature of like it's easy to transmit via oral sex. 
and it's much easier to transmit via anal sex simply due to the fact that anal sex results in more possible contact with blood or blood vessels or ruptures in blood vessels and things like that. So that's simply kind of what we want to clarify here is it's not that it's just two gay dudes that are enjoying each other's company. It's simply by the mechanism by which anal and oral sex might occur. Yeah. And I think, and just, I want to clarify that calling it gay disease is just a reference to how people used to talk about things like HIV and stuff. We're not saying it in that way and and being ignorant of how that sounds. You know, it's, it's just, we want to clarify that. I think a lot of people are going to hear this, potentially think this means, oh, same sex contact between people is result in syphilis. That's just not the case. It's just that, as you were saying, in that particular arrangement, the opportunities increase and you have the exact same increase in opportunities if you engage in those types of interactions with people of different sexes. So like it's not any different. It's just that there tend to be a higher amount of opportunities for people who engage in that kind of sexual practice. Thank you for clarifying that. I just want to make sure like we don't, you know, aren't offending people and that we understand that sometimes we will use terms that are sort of throwback to old terms to sort of point out how problematic those terms are. Right. Now, of course, there is a very specific recommendation of notifying partners about this. So in Canada and in the EU, in the United States, there's this this something called notifiable disease in which you must notify public health authorities is considered required to notify them. And these different states and countries have unique laws about also notifying partners that you may have had to let them know about the spread. And again, this is to try and really, first of all, allow people to be informed so that they can make decisions about their health, but also to be able to track and prevent further spread of these diseases. Right. And so another part of that, too, goes into this idea of social awareness and education, right? Like educating folks, making sure people know what this disease is, how it works, and just kind of having that basic education around it. So there have been some campaigns that have been created to bring awareness of those symptoms and risks to at-risk populations or areas. So there were some movements to discuss and, and really get information out to those areas, such as in San Francisco, Australia, Miami. Those are a couple different examples. Also thinking about lumping in Australia within that is kind of interesting. But there are a lot of different places and different groups of people or different areas that tend to have a higher risk simply due to demographics. Now, in some cases, there was as high as a 20% increase in testing and prevention, but in others, there was little to no positive effect. So these campaigns sometimes work, sometimes they don't work. Right. And so actually going back to your comment about Australia, there was this campaign called Drama Down Under around 2014, which seems a little too recent for that name to have been chosen, but whatever. And this was in Victoria, Australia, and they tried to use these sort of attention grabbing images and use humor and positive tailored messages that were simple and easy to understand, obviously using campaign features such as mainstream media as crucial steps in trying to normalize sexual health testing and really trying to just drive this engagement with the campaign and ensure that the message reached as many people as possible. Yeah, you're right. Like kind of calling a drama down under is a weird campaign slogan. I don't know, but you'll see that too. Like you'll see that in the United States where sometimes like humor is a tool to kind of, and satire is a tool to get information out to people. 
it's one of those things where just education, social awareness, because again, like in, I can speak to the United States and in Florida specifically, a lot of the sex education in Florida was all about abstinence and about and not really about prevention or safe sex or any of those things. And so you have a group of people, a population of people that are highly uneducated about this thing that puts them at risk simply by not knowing or not having the education for prevention or, or awareness. All right, so let's go ahead and actually wrap this one up here. And instead, what we'll do is we'll pick up the second part of this discussion next week. And in the upcoming discussion, we will talk about things like treatment. We are going to address some of the controversial history of this topic, and we will crack open a few myth skulls (laughs) in a fight to the myth death, if you will. (laughs) I don't know why I'm saying it that way. And also to talk about some of the other behavioral perspective and behavioral treatments for sort of prevention and and safe practices and that sort of thing. Yeah. I mean, I think this is one of those topics that, I mean, we have these every now and again, where some of them are super simple and then some of them are far more complex than we think they are when we dive in. So this is one of those ones where it's like, there's a lot to unpack within this, especially given its history. So we thought it'd be good to kind of split it up here. Yeah, it just makes sense to have them be their own separate sort of self-contained discussions, especially given how long this conversation is ultimately going to end up taking. But yeah, they're their own thing. All right, perfect. Well, thank you for recording with me. Thank you, everyone, for listening. If you would like to tell us about your experiences with syphilis or diagnosis or itchiness or stages of syphilis or anything like that, then we're perfectly happy to hear those things. If you want to talk to us about anything else, we're happy to hear those things too. Oh, and before we go, we should make some quick recommendations. Are you ready? Ready. Recommendations. All right. So I think at this time in the world where everything's on fire and nothing is working well, everybody just needs a good album, a good record. And I have learned recently in the last few years that I'm a big Tom Petty fan. I never realized that I liked Tom Petty as much as I did. Wow. I was thinking about this on the 4th of July because I was listening to... Like you do. Like you do. I was listening to Bruce Springsteen, like born in the USA, like just kind of having that moment, just, you know, like most Americans do. And I was like, you know, I don't think that Bruce Springsteen is representative of... The United States. I think that Tom Petty is a better representation. I think the like if, if you're gonna go, <laughs> them's fighting words. They are. Yeah, I know. I know it's controversial. Hot takes, but I think Tom Petty is better. Now, <laughs> that being said, I discovered that I like kind of like American folk music like that, and so. Dave Haas is a former punk guitar player. He sang for this band called The Loved Ones. He sings and writes all the music for it, but he went and did a solo record and a few solo records. And his last one is called Kick. So I recommend everybody go take a listen to Dave Haas Kick. The guy just gets melody. He gets music. It's very like, it feels very Americana. It feels like he could have played at the same time as Tom Petty and and all those guys. And it really fits into that niche. It's just a really great record. I, I, I love it. I'll stand up for Bruce Springsteen in this, but otherwise <laughs> I'm going to invite other people to come on here and stand up for Bruce Springsteen. But I know I, that's a cool recommendation. I'll have to check it out. But all right. My recommendation actually is going to be a board game as I'm wont to do. This is one that I have actually just played recently. It's called Jumble Jam. As I, mm-hmm. as I understand it, it's out of Europe. And this is a, a pretty basic set collecting game. It's very easy to learn. It doesn't take very long to play. The sort of idea of the game is there are these cards that you lay out in a grid pattern and these cards are pastries. And then there are these orders uh, for these pastry orders for things like we want two croissants and a piece of cake and four cookies or something like that. 
and you are trying to collect the pastries from the middle so you can complete those orders. And you do that by placing these little wooden jam jars okay. <laughs> next to the card. But spaces are limited. So you're sort of people are sort of trying to fight to get different cards to complete different orders. And that's just the, the gist of the game. You just go through doing that until either you run out of orders or someone has completed four orders perfectly. And that's it. And the box is pretty small. It's a cute little game. And I recommend it because it's really fun. It sounds so wholesome. It is like it's cute. And the whole so the whole idea is like it's your grandma's bakery and you're her grandchildren and you're you're there to like work there. And it's it's like, are you going to continue on the bakery legacy or are you going to bring the industry crashing down to its <laughs> knees or something like that? I don't know. You're going to destroy her legacy. That's fantastic. Like you like you find a you find a career in big croissant. That's exactly. <laughs> Whew. All right. So we'll speak more of that in the upcoming episode. Big croissant specifically. Just kidding. But anyway, if you want to stand up for Bruce Springsteen or if you want to defend Tom Petty or you want to tell us about working at your grandma's bakery factory, we definitely want to hear from you. I think that's all we have. So you can reach us on the social media platforms at podcast. And I think that's all we have. Anything else for this one? Nope, that's it. All right, this is Abraham. And this is Shane. We are out. See ya. You've been listening to Why We Do What We Do. Why We Do What We Do is supported in part by our amazing patrons. Thank you. If you like what you heard, consider becoming a patron by heading to patreon.com slash podcast. You can also rate and review us wherever you get your podcasts or share this episode with your friends. If you have any comments or questions, we'd love to hear from you. Find us at podcast on your favorite social media platforms. You can learn more about this and other episodes by going to www.podcast.com. There, you'll find links as well as detailed and shareable show notes. Why We Do What We Do is researched and produced by Abraham, Ryan O, Shane, and Miranda. Artwork and logo design by Andrew Pollock at nogdesigns.com. Video and production assistance from Tyler Brassier with music courtesy of Justin Greenhouse. Thanks for listening, and we hope you have an awesome day.